Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. Ufamu Africa's research and production assistant, Rory Moomin, has made her way back to the best coast for the rest of the summer, but she sent a few things to share with our listeners. Continuing her role as the bearer of bad news, Rory shares a BBC article reporting that Lipolelo Tabane, the estranged wife of Lesotho's Prime Minister Thomas Tabane, was shot dead just two days before his inauguration on Friday. Ms. Tabane was only 58 years old, and she and her friend were traveling home when they were attacked by an unknown assailant. Nevertheless, Tabani's inauguration continued as scheduled on Friday morning when he was officially sworn into office. For more background on Lesotho's recent elections and the political climate there, check out last week's episode with Michigan State University historian Dr. John Ernie Flessner. Following up on Rory's report last week about Ivorian footballer Cheikh Teote's death while training in China, she sends news that Teote's body is being flown home to the Ivory Coast where a private funeral will be taking place for the honored soccer player. Following Teote's death, the BBC ran a piece this week titled, Are African Footballers More Likely to Die on the Pitch? In it, they share some data on deaths of footballers while playing or training, and these preliminary results are disturbing. Quote, while Africans make up 17% of the world's footballers, they account for nearly 40% of the known deaths. End quote. Of course, this is not peer-reviewed research and is based on Wikipedia data on footballers, but it raises important questions about health disparities in sport that we hope will lead to deeper inquiry. We want to take a moment this week to recognize Dr. Adia Benton, featured in episode number 20, discussing her book, HIV Exceptionalism. Dr. Benton recently won the Rachel Carson Prize for her book. The Carson Prize is awarded for a book-length work of social or political relevance in the area of science and technology studies. In their award to Benton, the selection committee wrote, quote, HIV exceptionalism provides a powerful way of understanding the effects of global health policy on the lives of those who are its nominal beneficiaries. As a political intervention, it will inform struggles for a health policy that better reflects the desires and priorities of those beneficiaries, end quote. Congratulations, Adia. In preparation for this week's chat with Dr. Ken Apollo on the Kenyan elections, I've been looking online for more resources for our listeners and found a great new podcast. For folks who want a weekly deep dive into the Kenyan elections, I encourage you to listen to a special edition podcast called Kenya Election Watch with BBC journalist Dickens Alewe. The latest episode just released on Wednesday discusses an audit that exposes inaccuracies in the voter register and whether the high cost of electricity in Kenya could be driving away international investors. Kenya Election Watch is also taking listener questions, so if there's a campaign claim you want verified, be in touch with Dickens Alewe and the BBC team. There are three episodes of Kenya Election Watch currently online, with more being added weekly. Finally, I want to bring your attention to a piece in the Monkey Cage at the Washington Post this week by Dr. Jennifer Brass. The piece is titled, Kenyans Will Vote in August, Why Are NGO Government Relations an Issue? In the piece, Dr. Brass writes about her book, Allies or Adversaries, NGOs and the State in Africa, which she talked about with us in episode number 17. Check out our website, ufahamuafrica.com, Monday morning, when we'll post links to the pieces we've mentioned here, as well as bonus links to other things we found interesting. In this week's episode, we speak with Dr. Kennedy Apollo, 
an assistant professor at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. Ken's research focuses on political economy of development, legislative development, and electoral politics in emerging democracies. Ken blogs regularly at his blog, An Africanist Perspective, and currently is writing a weekly column for Kenya's major daily newspaper, The Standard. We talk this week about the upcoming Kenyan elections. Thank you, Ken, for joining us on Ufahamu Africa today. Thanks for having me. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was because I see you as an expert on Kenyan politics, but also because we've got this really exciting election coming up in Kenya, and I wanted our listeners to learn more about it. So you recently wrote a post on your blog giving some great background on the upcoming elections, which are slated for August 8th. Can you share with our listeners some of the main takeaways? Who are the major players? And what do you think voters will have on their minds when they walk into their polling station. So the Kenyan election this August is the second under the new constitution. That means that Kenya will have six elected positions on the ballot. One for president, for governors of Kenya's 47 counties, for members of parliament, which includes the National Assembly and the Senate, for women representatives, for their governors and members of the county assemblies. So each of the 47 counties has assemblies. Now, the most interesting elections, in my view, will take place in the counties. Mm-hmm. The devolved system of government under the 2010 constitution guarantees financing for the 47 counties, and the counties are in charge of healthcare and early childhood education, along with uh, local development of agriculture, county roads, etc. So, as much as everyone is focusing on the national presidential election, much of the action will be in the grassroots because over the last four years, Kenyans have realized that the counties get a lot of money. More than 15% of the national budget goes to the counties and governors have a lot of discretion on how to use that money. And the counties have held the money, and so I project that the county elections will be super competitive. Now, at the national level, the Constitution requires the winning candidate to have more than 50% of the vote, so it's not a simple plurality, uh, which has forced Kenya to form a near two-party system. And I say a near two-party system because Kenyan parties are very fickle. It's, you know, the... First president after the end of the single party rule, Mwai Kibaki, was not elected on the same party through which he won election the first time. And President Kenyatta is continuing that tradition. He's running on a new party, so he's had to form a new party that's different than the one that on which he was elected in 2013. But at the same time, there's this move to always have coalitions. So mm-hmm. in 20. 20- 13, there were two major coalitions, and this time around there will be two major coalitions. So one of the incumbent president who's retaining his running mate, and one led by Raul Odinga, who was running in 2013 and was also maintaining his running mate from 2013, Kalonzo Musioka. So often in African politics, there's a focus on the incumbent, right? So in this case, that would be President Uhuru Kenyatta. And that's because incumbents have an incredible advantage when it comes to running in an election. But I'd like you to share a bit more about the opposition in this race. Are they offering anything distinct from what the incumbent is offering? So are Odinga and his coalition, are they offering some policy programming or anything that's different from what the current administration is offering? And what chance does Raila Odinga and his coalition have in actually winning the election, even if not at the national level, maybe in these local elections that you say are are also really important and important to watch? I'll begin with the local election. It is indeed true that uh, the opposition is going to win in the counties. So actually, presently, 
the governing coalition from 2013 won a minority of the counties. Mm. So the wider opposition won a majority of the counties in 2013, mm-hmm. uh, which you know has served to sort of lessen the tension surrounding national politics. So opposition governors and the opposition coalition itself had a track record in the counties. Fortunately, most of it is uh, is dubious. More importantly, they, they have resources to enable them to run competitive elections vis-a-vis the incumbent. Hmm. So governors have money to spend uh, in an effort to sway voters. And the opposition alliance will definitely use some of those resources in their efforts to win this, this harvest. Now, this, of course, doesn't completely even the playing field vis-a-vis the president, but it certainly is a departure from you know previous eras when the opposition was completely flat-footed relative to the president. Does Raila Odinga have a chance of winning? I mean, how many times has this guy run? So this is going to be his fourth time running. Right. My own analysis suggests that he actually does have a chance if he can get his voters to show up. Kenyan politics, despite you know the ethnic angle that dominates uh, coverage of Kenyan politics, there's there's also an ideological divide, right. uh, which has lasted since the 60s. So you know there's there's a center right, if you may call it that, uh, sort of streak in Kenyan politics, represented by Uhuru Kenyatta, it tends to be pro-business and less, you know, grassroots oriented. There's a left to Kenyan politics, which has been dominated by the Odinga family, his father than himself, but which also has had members from uh, Central Kenya and the Rift Valley. So the current Odinga represents that wing of Kenyan politics, which is more grassroots oriented, pro-devolution, as opposed to the Kenyatta side, which is pro-central government. And so Dinga is running on making devolution work for Kenyans. He's also running on providing uh, more revenue at the local level as opposed to the national level. President Kenyatta is also running on a strong record, you know, for which is kind of different for a Kenyan president in an election because a lot has happened uh, over the last five years to suggest that he would be in a weak position this year. But growth has been pretty robust, even if not even, across the country. Right. Kenya's grown at more than 5%. And he's just launched the new railway line, which is, you know, the first time Kenya has constructed a new railway line since the early 1900s. That's something he'll surely remind voters of. I think that puts him in a strong position going in, even though the opposition also has a lot to complain about and to rally their voters around. Right. So let's talk about one of those things. So earlier, there was an NPR article published not that long ago about the soaring price of maize, which is a staple crop in Kenya. How much can we blame the shortage of maize that has led to this increase in the price to bad luck or to politics? And more importantly, who do Kenyan voters blame for this problem and will they hold anyone to account for it? Most people will definitely blame the incumbent because everyone thinks that the government ought to have done better. Now, it's it's also partially due to bad luck. Kenya is going through its worst drought in 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the maize crop the yield wasn't as great as it usually was. But it's also because of policy, because the government has done very little to improve productivity in the maize sector. Furthermore, after they realized that the yield did not meet expectations, they, they weren't proactive in ending bans to imports of uh, maize, in part because they wanted to satisfy farmers or a big constituency of the incumbent coalition. The farmers did not want imports because that would have diminished the price of maize. And so the timing was off. The imports were allowed in a little bit too late when prices had already gone up. And now the government is trying to keep prices down using subsidies, failing at it because it's, it's very hard to implement a subsidy 
in a dual price uh, sort of market. So Kenyans will blame the incumbent for this, but in my view, I don't think it's going to be strong enough to sway voters either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I see in, in public discourse in Kenya is that pro-Kenyatta and pro-Dinga supporters are pretty locked in in their views. And, you know, Kenyatta supporters will chalk this up to bad luck, citing the drought, which is partially true. Right. And Odinga supporters will lay the blame on the government, which is also true. So you're, it seems to me that you're telling a story that's not unlike a political story anywhere when it comes to elections, that it's less about whether they can swing a voter from one side of the aisle to the other, but it's more about whether they can mobilize their supporters to come out to the polls. Am I right in hearing uh, that? Uh, yes. So this is not to say that there aren't any swing regions in Kenya. There certainly are. Of course. I think ultimately it's going to be a game of who's going to bring out enough of their supporters to push them across the line. Going by history and looking at the demographics in Kenya, Kenyatta has a structural advantage in this regard. His voters tend to be, on average, of higher income, more educated, and therefore more aware about politics. That also makes them have a lot more to lose, while Odinga supporters are still mostly rural, uh, lower income, and therefore may not be as super motivated to show up to vote. Right. But if we look at the patterns of voter turnout across the continent, it tends to be that people in rural areas are more likely to participate in elections, right? They're more likely to turn out to vote. That is also true. But if you look at rural voters in yes. general, and I don't think there's any work on this, then that would be, it would be interesting to look at a cross-continental comparison. Right. Uh, just conditional on being rural, I think income and education or exposure to news plays a role in conditioning whether people show up to vote or not. And I think Odinga's problem is that most of his voters have historically not showed up to vote in the rural areas. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the count, right? Because that's, that's essentially what this is going to come down to is whether enough people are going to show up to vote for their their preferred candidate. You recently wrote a post titled, Was the IEBC's distribution of BVR kits for mass voter registration fair? And just for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Kenyan electoral context and all of these acronyms, IEBC stands for the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission. They administer Kenya's elections. And BVR kits refer to biometric voter registration kits, which use fingerprints and facial features to uniquely identify voters. And Kenya has been using these since at least 2012, I believe. Now, the idea is that these tools, right, things like the biometric registration kits, that they can improve the integrity of an election. And and we know that in previous Kenyan elections, there have been some challenges to the integrity of the results and whether certain numbers were inflated in favor of the incumbent. Now, of course, we know that technology alone isn't a solution as, you know, it's people in power who get to decide how to use this technology and where to send them, as your post title might suggest. So just drawing on that piece and your general assessment, how concerned should voters and analysts be about the integrity of the upcoming August elections? I think they should be concerned. And this is true, you know, just about any election anywhere. I don't believe in uh, good politicians. I believe in constrained <laughs> politicians. And so if the incumbent or the opposition are not constrained, uh, they'll try and rig the election, especially in their strongholds. And, you know, Kenya is one of those unique cases in which rigging doesn't only happen in the incumbent strongholds. It also happens in the opposition strongholds. Right. So both sides ought to be watched closely. 
Now, with BVR uh, in Kenya, you're right that people in power choose when to deploy and how to deploy technology. At times, they also choose when technology fails. Right. Uh, so in 2013, the tallying system in Kenya crashed, and so the country had to resort to manual tallying. The tallying process was supposed to be automatic uh, from the constituencies to the national tallying center. That did not happen, which left the opposition complaining of malpractice on the side of the government. This year will not be any different. And already, you know, in the news, there are stories about internal struggles within the IBC, about the tendering process, which funds are being chosen to deploy and manage the technology over the election, and whether there should be a provision for a reversion to a manual count if the technology fails. Now, the opposition is also pushing for results to be announced at the constituency level. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kenya Kenya has 290 constituencies, and the logic behind it is that it's easy to fudge aggregate numbers at the national level, but it may be not as easy to fudge 290 separate numbers at the constituency level in real time. So the hope is that counting at the constituency level will limit the ability of, whether they come into the opposition, the ability to manipulate the numbers coming out of the constituencies. So all of this that you're sharing is reminding me a lot of the work of George Afosu, who's just recently completed his PhD at UCLA, and he studies elections, and he had a, a working paper a couple of years ago about the failure of biometric machines, and that it can't just be blamed on the machines, right? That there's got to be something else going yeah. on. It's, um, it's but not also, random. Yeah, but also he has a newer paper, again, a working paper, this time with Dan Posner, his advisor, UCLA, where they look at aggregation fraud. Just like what you're saying, the numbers that may have come up at the polling stations or even at the district level are not necessarily the same numbers that get reported by the National Electoral Commission. And the first paper was in Ghana and the second paper was in Malawi. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, Ghana was uh, one of the first countries to enforce this constituency level counting but precisely because of these concerns that the aggregate numbers often do not reflect the numbers coming out of the polling stations or the counting centers at the subnational level. Now, you know, the, the hope most Kenyans had was that this whole process was going to be automated from the polling station level mm-hmm. uh, so that, you know, you just have an automatic count the second someone votes. But because of technological constraints, you know, not all polling stations have power, etc. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's been very hard to automate this process. Now, the Kenyan opposition this time plans to have a parallel tallying system. They'll send agents in every polling station. And, you know, Kenya is projected to have more than 40,000 polling stations this, this year around, this time around. And it will be interesting if they can do this. If they do, it'll it'll provide a great parallel to what the IEBC does. And is the parallel vote tabulation that's going to be done for this election, will that be conducted by IEBC or by an independent group? There's likely to be one conducted by an independent group. Okay. And I wonder if uh, they'll be releasing their results in real time or... Well, yeah. So there's the hope among the civil society and public intellectuals in Kenya is that this will be done in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the IBC insists that in order to prevent violence and such, uh, they should have the ultimate authority to give the final figure. While you know most Kenyans of goodwill insist that, yes, it's their role to certify the final outcome, but if the numbers are public, then it, sh- it shouldn't be a problem to aggregate uh, public information. Exactly. Well, I hope that, that that will be able to happen, that people will be able to hear the results as they come in and then draw their own conclusions before it's confirmed. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for sharing that with us. I wondered, though, before you go, 
Is there anything you're reading right now that you'd recommend to our listeners? And it doesn't have to be nonfiction, political science stuff, but but really anything about the content that you're interested in or or maybe even something that you've read recently. I'll tell you about two books that I'm reading right now. Okay. Uh, one is on Tanzania. It's by Aile Mari Tripp, Changing the Rules, the Politics of Liberalization and the Urban Informal Economy in Tanzania. It's a great book that provides a great account of the politics of SAP structural adjustment programs Mm -hmm. and reforms in Tanzania. These days I've, you know, began to feel like we don't know a lot about the 80s in Africa and uh, I've been trying to dig up and find out as much as I can about the 80s beyond, you know, the doom and gloom that's available in the data. And then secondly, I'm reading uh, The God of Small Things. I'm embarrassed to say that this is the first time reading it. And that's because Roy is finally publishing a new book after a while. And everyone keeps telling me that this was a great book when it came out. And so I'm trying to catch up on it. It's on my list for summer reading, so don't be embarrassed. I haven't read it yet either, but I cannot tell you how many friends have told me that it was an important book and one of the, one of their favorites that they've ever read. So I'm, I'm glad for you to, to share that with us and, and to make those recommendations to our listeners. Uh, yes, I highly recommend it. Well, thank you so much, Ken. We hope to hear from you again. Maybe after the elections are over, you can give us some post-election analysis of where Kenya is going to be going in the future. Yes, I'm very excited and uh, I look forward to covering both the national and county elections over the next uh, couple of weeks. Until next week, find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. We're at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by ALAC and by the government department. Rory Moomin, Smith College Class of 2020, is our research and production assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Our featured song this week is Winning in Life by the Kenyan group Just a Band. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.